We'll turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the book of Jonah. Uh, the book of Jonah. Today we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Jonah that Lord willing will take us straight through the summer. Uh, the thought of that might be puzzling to you because depending on the size of the font in your Bible, you might have flipped past Jonah really fast. It's only a four chapter book. So you might say to yourself, self, how could we spend an entire summer in a four chapter book? It's four chapters long and one of them is basically an entire prayer. Well, as we spend time in it, I not only hope we'll see the multifaceted truth that can be gleaned from the book of Jonah, but perhaps you'll also spend time in it on your own, both during and after the series is done. And so in light of its size, I want to strongly encourage you to consider adding Jonah to whatever your normal Bible reading routine is. Again, it's just four chapters long. On average, it takes me, not speed reading, takes me about 10 minutes, maybe a little under, just to read through the book. You could theoretically read through the book every day and only add minutes to your regular Bible reading. And it's a good opportunity for you to familiarize yourself with the book. You could read two chapters in the morning and two chapters in the evening. You could read a chapter a day. You could read the whole book on Sunday, literally before you leave to come to church. It's a small book. And I familiarize myself with, uh, with lots of smaller books of the Bible simply by committing to reading through them regularly, repeatedly, over a short period of time. I'll do Philippians for a week. I'll do Colossians for two weeks. I'll do Ephesians for a month. You can leave that period of time having really familiarized yourself with a portion of Scripture, even having memorized some of it just because you've read it so often and seen different things as you dive into the text. Suffice to say, there's a wide variety of ways that you can familiarize yourself with a four-chapter book. So I want to suggest that you take advantage of this opportunity and make what we do on Sundays something you do in between Sundays. I hope you'll do that. The goal of this message is to present a general introduction to Jonah. And uh, here's and to frame how I hope we'll approach the book and the series and this time in the Word. And admittedly, I'm structuring this sermon based on two assumptions. I know the secular proverb about what happens when you assume. I'm well aware of that. But I'm still basing this on two assumptions based on my personal walk with the Lord and my experience with other people. The first one is this. That it's not uncommon for people to not be as familiar with the Old Testament as they are with the New Testament. That's not uncommon. You might admit that that's the case for you. That you say, yeah, I'm way more familiar with the New Testament than I am the Old Testament. And especially minor prophets, I'm really not that familiar with them. And I want to start off by saying, on the one hand, I kind of get it. Believers come to faith. They have their lives radically changed by Jesus Christ. And therefore spend more time learning about Jesus, his teachings, his followers, and people living in New Testament times. We know Paul says what? Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Christians by nature are forward looking. We're future oriented people. I get it. But here's the thing. I would say the Christian who is unfamiliar with the Old Testament has a faith that's quite a bit more, shall we say, blind than the Christian who is familiar with the Old Testament. Again, I'm not saying that person is not a believer, not at all. I'm not saying they, they won't both be in heaven. They sure will. I'm just saying the Christian who is unfamiliar with her or his Old Testament will arrive in heaven a little more blindly than the other. For instance, we know Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 9 there says, no one is saved by works. But equally important is the fact that no one will be saved by facts. We're not saved by grace through facts. We're saved by grace through faith. Now, some people think that lost people are just a few key facts away from being saved. But that's assuming a lost person even cares about the fact that they're lost. Wants to be saved. Longs to understand themselves in light of Scripture. And the fact remains that's just not the case. The Lord has to do a work in someone's heart so that they can understand truth. The Lord has to grant the gift of saving faith so that people can understand and even want to have a relationship with a holy God. People don't go to hell for lack of evidence. They go for lack of faith and lack of love for Jesus Christ. Faith is a gift from God. Salvation is an act of God from start to finish. We are a people of faith. But listen, ours isn't a blind faith. We're not people who walk blindly by faith. Ours is a faith in the sufficiency of the evidence. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest no one should boast. But that doesn't mean we don't have anything to base our faith on. There's a ton we have to base our faith on. Evidence will never bring you full circle to saving faith, but it'll fill in a lot of gaps. And if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, you really don't know why the Jews were looking for a Messiah, Savior, King, and why Jesus was, in fact, that Messiah, Savior, King. You won't know that if you don't know your Old Testament. And I'm not saying you have to be an Old Testament scholar. I'm not even saying you have to speak or read Hebrew. Just saying, if you don't have a working familiarity with the Old Testament, you're not going to appreciate these things. You'll not be able to appreciate the fact that Jesus fulfilled every messianic prophecy regarding his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, even his ascension into heaven. You need to see that beforehand and then see it having happened in the New Testament. There are prophecies about where Jesus was born. Nobody chooses where they'd be born unless they're the son of God. Nobody could choose to fulfill a prophecy about living in Egypt for two years, let alone the first two years of your life. There are prophecies about the manner in which Jesus would be killed. And yet Jesus nowhere tells people how they're supposed to kill him. But it happens, and so the prophecy is fulfilled. The more you read your Old Testament, the more your faith will be strengthened because you see over and over and over again that Jesus Christ was not a self-fulfilling prophet, but really was the very Son of God, the Messiah, King, Savior that we need. As we've spent time together in Luke, for example, which is the sermon series we're taking a break from, right? We see the Pharisees perverting God's law, adding to God's law. How do you know that they're doing that if you don't have a reference point of what God's law was from the first place? You say, well, the pastor tells us that they're perverting God's law. We just kind of trust him. Listen, I know me pretty well. I'm thankful for your trust, but please compare what I'm saying to the word of God. How can you understand that the Pharisees really are twisting, maligning, adding to the law of God if you don't have a basic understanding of what the law of God was in the first place? How can you appreciate Jesus' indignation as he cleared out the temple courtyard? You can only do that if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Otherwise, you look at that and you think, wow, even Jesus got really angry. He's turning over tables and stuff. Wow. But do you know why he's really angry? Because what was going on in that temple courtyard was far from what God intended to go on in the place of prayer and worship. And we know that because we read that in the Old Testament, not just because we kind of 
you know, we're just like winging it. But we see that in the word of God. Do you know that some Old Testament prophecies contain so much detail, skeptics accuse the prophecy of being written after the fulfillment. They think there's just no way it could have been fulfilled beforehand and fulfilled like that. Because it's that much detail. There's actually, it's actually the skeptics that are actually, they're trying to heap an insult on, say, I don't believe that. That was fulfilled like letter, to the letter. That had to be, fulfilled, to be written after it was fulfilled. But it actually serves to strengthen our faith because we know when the text was written. We know when that prophecy was written. And we know that it was fulfilled literally to the letter. And so as we kick off this series together, let me give you a little bit of context surrounding Jonah, assuming that to some degree we might be largely unfamiliar with the Old Testament or maybe spend some time away from it. So we'll start off by saying this. Of the many false accusations the Pharisees railed against Jesus, one of them was the fact that he was from Galilee, John seven fifty two. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. But they were wrong. Because Jonah was a prophet and was, in fact, a Galilean, 2 Kings 14 and verse 25. Based on that, the context places him during the reign of Jeroboam II. Jonah was a prophet to the northern tribes just prior to Amos during the first half of the 8th century B.C. Now, historically speaking, the nation of Israel as a nation was enjoying a time of peace, a time of prosperity, relatively speaking. Syria and Assyria were weak, and this allowed Jeroboam II to expand and enlarge the northern borders of Israel to where they once were during the reigns of David and Solomon. That's really good for the nation of Israel. But although Israel was enjoying relative peace and prosperity as a nation, it was a time of spiritual poverty. People's hearts were far from God. Their religious practices were just rote rituals, and their lives were increasingly idolatrous, and justice had become perverted throughout the nation. And so just like we see nowadays, times of peace, times of wealth, times of prosperity and comfort oftentimes sadly accompany ethical and moral and spiritual bankruptcy. That's what's happening during this time when we find Jonah. And so Jonah begins at a time when God was going to punish Israel by bringing destruction and captivity from the Assyrians in 722 BC. Now, as we'll see when we dive into the text, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach repentance, and Jonah refuses to go. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria and was a Gentile city founded by the great-grandson of Noah named Nimrod, and had always been a nemesis of Israel and Judah. They were known for their cruelty to their enemies, some of which I'll explain next week, Lord willing. And so on a human level, I'd say it's somewhat understandable as to why Jonah would be anywhere from hesitant to refusing to go there. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the weeks ahead. But that's a bit about what's going on in the world of Jonah at the time the book begins. And perhaps as you heard me speak, you think there's a lot of similarities between that time and the time I'm living in right now. Especially in these very uncertain times. Friends, I don't think the book of Jonah could come to our church family at a greater time than this. And I think God has much for us to learn as we spend this time in the text. Now earlier I said I was framing the sermon around two assumptions. The first one is that I find that Christians tend to be largely unfamiliar or less familiar with the Old Testament than the New. Maybe they skip it, maybe they skim it. The other is this. 
I think most Christians hear way more about Jonah as children than they do adults. And most of you are nodding. Most people hear about Jonah way more as children than they do adults. I've mentioned this series to people in passing. And a very common response from people, all different types of people, new Christians, older Christians, seasoned Christians, even non-Christians. Hmm, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon series through Jonah. Or I don't think I've been taught about Jonah since I was a kid. I'm convinced that the vast majority of us, perhaps if we polled the room, you would probably say, yeah, the most I ever heard about Jonah involved a flannel graph or a song or instruments or some sort of a gummy treat or something like that because you heard it perhaps in vacation Bible school or perhaps in children's ministry, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's worth doing. But this is the thing. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the book of Jonah is fairly easy for kids to understand and fairly easy to keep their attention. A big fish eats a dude and pukes him on the seashore. If that's not going to keep a kid's attention, I don't know what is. (laughs) But bear with me here. Because your experience with the book of Jonah might be something like this. Okay, kids. There once was a man named Jonah. We're going to listen. Now, everybody listen. We're going to learn about him today. God told him to go to Nineveh. But you know what? He didn't go. (sighs) Gasp for me. He didn't go. Thank you. Exactly right. And he went the other way. And even though God told him to go to Nineveh by land, he went to Tarshish by sea. Actually paid a fare. Got on a boat. He wasn't lost. He was fleeing the presence of the Lord. Right. Yeah. See? And and then all of a sudden, do you know what happened? There was a storm at the sea. And the sailors were wondering why the storm was happening. And guess where Jonah was? He was sleeping on the boat. And the kids giggle. How could they? Thank you. They, they, how, could, how could he be sleeping? But he's sleeping. They go up and they ask him, do you know why this is happening? And Jonah's very honest. He says, yes, I'm fleeing the presence of the Lord. He says, they say, what should we do? Like cry out to your God. What are we supposed to do? And he said, you're going to have to throw me into the sea and the storm will stop. And so they did. And then guess what? A big fish came and ate Jonah up, but swallowed him whole. And he was in the tummy of the fish for three days and three nights. Right. And Jonah prayed and he cried out. And he realized what he had done was wrong. And then all of a sudden, the fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. No, this is, yeah, this is, yeah, ew, like gross. And then guess what? Jonah 3 starts out like Jonah 1. God's like, we're going to try this again. Go to Nineveh, bro. And this time he does, and he goes, and he speaks to the Ninevites, and the Ninevites hear about their wrongdoing, and they repent, and they love the Lord. And instead of Jonah being happy because his mission was accomplished, he's very sad. But God has mercy on him. He sends a plant to cover him. And I'm going to stop right there. But if this is the only way you've ever heard of Jonah, you probably associate the book of Jonah and the account of Jonah 
with the same tone of voice you might have heard Goodnight Moon. <laughs> or Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Think about it. What are we saying about Bible accounts that are oftentimes told to children but almost never told to adults? I don't think we mean to, but I think we inadvertently section off parts of the Bible as if there are sections for kids and sections for grown-ups. It's like we have this portion of Scripture that we tell kids, and then when we're grown up, we move on to grown-up things. Oh, the David and Goliath thing and the Jonah thing and the... Eh. Friends, I'm convinced that much of the skepticism that comes surrounding Jonah as to how we're to interpret it, literally or figuratively, is because of that very thing. Because the people who have heard about the book of Jonah heard it during a time in their life when the stuff they were hearing, because their kids, kind of like 50-50. Might have been true, might have heard that I was a kid. It was kind of told to me melodramatically, it involved a lot of flannel graph. I'm pretty sure it's true, it was in the Bible, but maybe it's like a parable. So the title of this sermon is Don't Judge a Book by Its Title, which brings us to our first point. Don't be fooled by the title. Remembering God as the main character will change the way you interpret Jonah, top to bottom, inside and out. Your Bible is composed of 66 books, all with different titles, based on authors or recipients or places or times or places. Or if you, and, if, and you might read through the Old Testament and think there are so many different characters being focused on. But in reality, you have to understand the main character of the entire Bible is God. The hero of every Bible account is God. There are other people involved, but we literally could name the whole Bible, instead of like Genesis and Exodus, we could just name it God. That would be really hard to navigate, right? Because Exodus twenty twelve, which says, honor your father and your mother, would be like God 70. Like, first, so that's really weird. So that's not what we're doing. But you would not be wrong to say, yeah, this book that we're reading, it's about God. Hey, what's Deuteronomy about? It's about God. What about Numbers? It's about God. First Kings, Second Samuel, what's that about? Is that about Samuel? Kind of. But it's really about, guess who? God. It's always about God. God's the hero each and every time. Every single solitary thing you read throughout the Old and New Testament reflects the character of God and the hero of every account is God. It's one of the most important things when we do teach children to make sure that we don't say that David is the hero, but God is the hero. That Moses was the hero who parted the Red Sea because he didn't. God parted the Red Sea. Now, I gotta be honest with you. It's gonna be so cool to meet the prophets of old when we get to heaven. I'm, that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to. I'm really looking forward to finally meeting the people that I've only ever read about, the people that God has used in an amazing way. I'm expecting to have to wait in line to meet Moses, which probably tells you that I have a poor view of heaven because I think there'll be lines. But <laughs> it's just my way I think. Like, wow, every tribe and tongue and nation, that's, that's going to be a lot of lines. It'll be a lot of lines. But I don't know if there's a cooler person from the Old Testament than Moses. I just got to be honest with you. What happened during Moses' life and ministry is referenced more than any other event in the scriptures. It's constantly referred to. You see it in the Psalms constantly. The Psalms sing of God having rescued his people from slavery, having rescued the nation of Israel out of the nation of Egypt. Parents are instructed to make sure their kids never forget what God did in rescuing their people from the mighty nation of Israel. I dare you to wait in line to meet Moses and ask him how he did it. How'd you do that, man? 
He'll probably, he's probably going to look back at you and say, me? I didn't, do, I didn't do squat. I doubted. I stuttered. I, I stood before, like, how did I do it, Moses would say. I stood before the Red Sea. The nation of Israel is behind me. And Egypt is coming. I told them that the Lord is going to fight for us. I don't know how he was going to do it. And then God said for me to stretch out my hand and hold up my staff in front of the... So here, we picture, like, Charlton Heston has kind of done us wrong, right? Charlton Heston's, like, super tough. I think Moses was like this. <laughs> right? None of this, like, behold his mighty hand. And he does. No, I think Moses was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and then the Red Sea parted. Why would Moses have been like that? Because he didn't do it. Because God did. The hero's God. Every time. The main character is God. How did you do it, Moses? I didn't do anything. I doubted. I stutter. I stammer. I fall like the rest of them. I hit rocks when I'm angry. God did everything. We wandered around the desert wilderness for years and God fed us from the sky, bro. How'd you do it? I put one foot in front of the other and walked in circles for like a long time. And God fed us from the sky. That's how I did it. Don't be fooled by the title of the book of Jonah because the hero, the main character, is none other than God himself. Why am I stressing this? Because over the centuries, people have wrestled with whether or not Jonah, I've mentioned this before, should be interpreted as historical narrative or fictional narrative. Maybe it's a parable of some sort. And sure, if you read the Bible through a man-centered lens, you're going to wonder if that could really happen. Many of the people who doubt this, they're believers too. That means they accept the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. And I'm not trying to measure miracles, but I'm going to measure miracles a little, which I think is a way bigger miracle than a man being eaten by a fish and vomiting, up on the, being vomited up on the seashore. But they accept the fact that Jesus Christ died for their sins, was buried and rose on the third day and ascended into heaven. Do you know why they did that? Because that's Jesus and Jesus is God. That's kind of a big deal. He's God. He does what he wants. But Jonah... Can a man really be swallowed by a fish and hang out in his stomach for a few days and survive? And the answer is no. Can someone be puked by a fish onto dry land? Do fish leave the water to vomit? Right? Fish are like, I swim where I poop, but where I puke, I have standards. Like, does this happen? Is this a thing? The answer is no. This doesn't happen. Let's rephrase the question, though. Can God appoint a fish to come and swallow up Jonah whole and put him in the fish's stomach? Oh, yeah, now it's like a no-brainer, right? Can God do that? Yes. God's like, can I do that? I created the whole world in six days. I rested on the seventh. Can I appoint a fish? This is not hard for me. Can I do that? Yeah. Can a man be, I don't even know if fish vomit, but can, can, can can a man then be vomited up by a, Fish onto dry land and survive that? No. Can God do? Oh, yeah. And so when you remember the main character is God and you're a believer, then all of a sudden it's, it's oh, this is a no-brainer. I'm not asking if Jonah could do this. I'm not asking if Jonah could survive this. I'm not asking if Jonah, of course, Jonah couldn't do any of this. But nothing's impossible for God. 
God does what he wants. He's kind of a big deal. Nothing's impossible for him. Well, okay then. So if you read Jonah through a God-focused lens, you'll stop asking questions like, can a fish do that? Can a man do that? Can a worm do that? Because you'll start seeing that God can do that. And since he can do that, it's not a stretch to believe that he did do that. And we look at this historically. In your outline, I put several different, you could look in the Bible or your outline, Jonah 1 and verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. That Hebrew word hurled is the same word that would be used to throw a javelin. How awesome is that? The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Three verses later, Jonah 1 and verse 7. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots, so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So well, what does that have to do with God? Because Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Jonah 1 and verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah 2 and verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Don't you love how in the text, this, this, this huge thing that we think about, like, wow, the fish and the swallowing and the puking, it's so, very little ink is dedicated to it. It's just like, and the Lord appointed a fish and ate the guy. And he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Oh, then the Lord had the fish puke him up on the seashore. It's like, it's not that big of a deal. We make it a big deal, but to the prophets of old, they're like, of course God could do this. This is what happened, and this is what he did. I'm not going to go on about it. It was a big fish. It was way bigger than Jonah. It had a big tummy. It had a big mouth. It ate Jonah, and it puked him up. Moving on. Look at Jonah 3 and verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, it's not, did, how did Jonah convince the Ninevites to repent? No, no. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah 4 and verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant that God appointed. The next verse. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Next verse. For, uh, verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Friends, this is not a a book about what happened to Jonah. This is a record of what God did in and through a man named Jonah. Jonah is in every way, shape, and form secondary. Now, when you read Jonah through a God-focused lens, when your expectations are defied, your explanations are defined. When your expectations are defied, your explanations are defined. Defined. Thank you, Josh Snell. It was 2009 in January when I received a voicemail on my cell phone as my wife Sarah and I were landing in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, We were um, flying. You say, really? Is that what you were doing if you landed? Thanks. I don't know why I just said we were flying. But we were flying and then we landed. And so we were on our way to a conference and I received a voicemail and it was from my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law said, she sounded very rattled and she said, I just wanted to let you know that dad was in a plane crash, but he's okay. Please pray for him, and I'll talk to you soon. Now, those phrases rarely accompany each other, right? In a plane crash is rarely followed by, but it's okay. It's okay is rarely in the same sentence of there was a, I literally handed the phone to Sarah thinking, I must have misheard this because 
these things don't match up. It's what Sarah heard too. We walk inside the airport and we see a picture of an airplane floating in the Hudson River. U.S. Airways Flight 1549 that my father-in-law was on. And God spared him and every other passenger on that airplane. In fact, if you're listening at the Fort Thomas campus, he's visiting today. And maybe he'll sign your Bible. (laughs) But that aside, sometimes as you're reading through something or listening to something, the very next phrase defies your expectations. Right? Someone was in a plane crash. Oh, my gosh. Is it, is it pessimistic for me to say, when is the funeral? Like, I just think that's normal. How did it happen? But I'm assuming the fate of those involved is usually death. But he's okay. Pray for him. Wait, what? My expectations are defied. As you read through the book of Jonah, I'm convinced There's more expectations defied throughout the book of Jonah than maybe in any other book. And this is what I want to ask you to do, particularly if you're familiar with the book of Jonah. It might be hard. And if you've only ever heard it in this voice, it might also be hard. So you got to get that voice out of your head. I want to encourage you to read through the book of Jonah and try to, I don't know how to word this, try to guess what you would expect to happen next based on your knowledge of the scriptures and what typically happens. Right? So I get the voicemail saying, uh, your dad's been in a plane crash. I'm thinking death. But the next phrase was, but he's okay. My expectations were defied. Uh, Look at Jonah 1 and verse, Jonah 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, most times when the Lord speaks to a prophet, we may not know how it ends, but the prophet says, when the Lord says go, the prophet does what? Goes, right? That's not like, like, that's just typically what happens. Now, what happens later on, but typically it's like when God says jump, we kind of say how high. And so my expectation would be like, all right, I don't know how this is going to go, but he's going to go, right? Go to Nineveh. Verse 3, uh, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Well, shoot. Didn't see that coming. Uh, look at verse, look at verse 12. Uh, we'll start in verse 11, Jonah 1 verse 11. Then they said to him, so they're in the middle of the storm, right? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He, Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Look at the next verse. So you would think they're like, all right, yeet, right? Like they were just like, launch him over the boat, like into the water. Like, okay, well, that's what we're going to do. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. So it's like, what do you want us to do? If this is your fault, what are we supposed to do? And he's like, throw me in. And they're like, we're not going to throw him. Yeah, we're not going to do that. All right, everyone grab an oar. All right, because he's crazy. We're going to try to row this thing out. So the first thing that they do is not launch him into the water. They're like, yeah, no. We're totally not going to do that. Like, that just seems crazy. We're sailors. We don't throw people into the sea. So we're not going to do that. That defies your expectation. Uh, Look at verse 14. They call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay down on us innocent blood. 
for you, O Lord, have done it as, as you, I can't even speak. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So, verse 15, they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This would be a perfect time to end the story. Right? The moral is like, what a great plot twist. The guy who was the prophet ended up being rebellious. The Gentiles actually threw him into the water. God judged him because of his rebellion. And guess what happens? The sailors on the ship, they're saved. They're worshiping the Lord. Ha ha. This is how God works. He sends the grace to the people who you would least expect it. And the religious person, he wipes out. This is how it ends. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow. Gee whiz. I mean, literally, you could read through. I found 10. So what I just did, I found 10 of them. I want to challenge you to read through this and look how many times your expectations are just defied. How, how odd, how extraordinary this book is because you're like, well, based on other Bible stories and Bible accounts, I would expect this to happen. And that thing does not happen. Like that, that doesn't happen. One more. The end of chapter 2. Uh, Jonah's praying. He ends, uh, verse 9. But, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's in the belly of a fish. This is another perfect ending for him to die. He has repented. He sees the error of his ways. He understands he deserved and he got what was coming from him. And now he realized salvation is of the Lord. And so that's where it ends. Another great like twist, right? Because now not only did the sailors get saved, but we thought Jonah was going to die in judgment. But it turns out that he repented. And now he's saved and he's going to die and go and be with the Lord. Verse 10 says, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out. It's like, gee, because I can't win for losing. So I would challenge you to read through the book of Jonah in that way. Read through it. And remember the words of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and following, when the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, when you read Jonah through a God-focused lens, your expectations might be defied, but your explanations are defined because you remembered, oh, The main character is who? God. How would he survive that? Uh, The main character is God. Oh, oh yeah. How would that happen to a man? Oh, the main character is God. Oh yeah. Every time your expectations are defied, your explanations are defined because we go back to the main character and we remember, oh, this isn't really so much about Jonah. It's about God acting through Jonah. So what does this have to do with you? me. Point number two. Don't be fooled by the mirror. Remembering God as the main character will change the way you interpret your life. You probably spend some time looking in the mirror each morning. Not always the most fun time. Because gravity and time are winning. But it can be a scary sight also because there's probably a time when you're done, you've you got the when you do something like this, to to one degree or another, where you go and then you walk out and you face your day. 
right? You, whatever, ladies, you put on makeup, you do whatever you do. Finish brushing your teeth, whatever you do. And you walk out and you face your day. But the reason that can be a scary sight is because you're the only one you see. And you're going out to face whatever is in store for that day. And if you go based on what you see in the mirror, it's just you versus the day. You versus the project. You versus life. But just like I don't want you to be fooled by the title of the book of Jonah, don't be fooled by what you see in the mirror. As much as God is the main character in the book of Jonah, he's the main character in your life too. He's working. He's acting. He's moving. He's causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Romans 8 and verse 28. Viewing your life through a God-focused lens and you'll see it as, a, as the redemptive narrative that it truly is. Not just this, everything's spinning outside of my control. I just couldn't imagine my life going this I don't even know what's going on. I can't get a hold of anything. Here's another verse that we tend to memorize as children. It's in your outline. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In as many ways as possible, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It's not what it says. In how many of your ways? In what? In all. Say it again. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Even when you don't see him working, you know he's working, right? Can you acknowledge God in a situation when you can't see God in that situation? I'm not talking about God in the wow. I'm excited when God shows up in a wow way. Great. No offense. It's easy to acknowledge God in the wow, right? When Lazarus, who was dead and whose body stinketh, walked out of the grave for us to say, that would be God. That's, thank you, Captain Obvious. Like, yeah, that, 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 of course we know that's God. What about when you can't see God working? What about when it's not looking for God in the wow, but looking for God in the now? Just the everyday conversations you're having with other people. The trips to the store. The drive to work. Acknowledging God in the most seemingly mundane of moments or even the foggiest, scariest, saddest of moments. Believing that God is the main character despite the fact you only see you in the mirror. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Your life story isn't an account of what happened to you. Your life story is an account of what God does and did in and through you. Praise his name. What about you? Does God usually come to mind as you're going through the fairly ordinary things in your life? How, how cognizant are you of the centrality of God in the events of your everyday life? Just, just the normal events of your everyday life. The events that seem major, 
the events that maybe not, they've probably even fallen off your mind right now. I'm talking about sitting across from a doctor and he or she telling you he gives it a, they give it about six to nine months. We usually acknowledge God right then and there, as we should, right? What about the parking space? What about the interaction with a neighbor? What about the difficult interaction with a neighbor when you're trying to put up a fence and you're arguing over property lines? Is God in that moment? Yes. Can he work through you in that moment? Yes. Can he work through him or her in that moment? Yes. Because you're not the main character and your neighbor's not the main character and the person who gave you the parking space isn't the main character and the person who sniped that parking space from you isn't the main character. The main character in the whole time is God. How cognizant are you of the centrality of God in the events of your everyday life? Because that's what we're going to see a lot of as we get into the book of Jonah. Look what God was doing. 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 Not saying we're not going to look at what Jonah did and didn't do. Of course we are. But the main character will all be against the backdrop of what is God doing. Job 11 and verse 7. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? View your life through a God-focused lens. And when your expectations are defied, your explanations can be defined. When you say, I don't know, this is spinning out of control. I don't know how we're going to make this work. I don't know how we're going to put these things together. I don't know how we're going to tie these. We tried this and it didn't work and we tried that. I've poured all my time and energy into this wayward child, this wayward daughter, this wayward son, and they're just not, well, I don't know what else to do. I I don't know what to do. All my expectations have been defied. I've poured time into this ministry and it's flopping. I've Pour time into this relationship and it just seems to keep getting more sour and sour and sour. I don't know what to do. I don't even know if I should keep trying. I don't even know how I should act. Even when I don't see him working, he's working. My expectations have been defied. The explanation has been defined. I don't know all the details, but God is working. He's still the main character of every aspect of your life, even that crazy one that's spinning out of control. Ecclesiastes 11.5. I texted Sarah when I read it in my prep, and I said, have I ever read this before? Like, I just, did that ever happen to you? Like, you've read your Bible many times, but just something just struck you. Ecclesiastes 11.5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Wow. Just like you can't explain how that works. If you're a medical professional, you probably can explain more than I can, but you can't explain it in its entirety. Just like you don't know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Martin Luther said it best, I know not the way God leads me, but well do I know my guide. What about you? God's the main character. Don't be fooled by the mirror. How does that inform your interpretations 
of the best times of your life. The best times, the best memories, the the most glorious times that you look back on. Maybe they're in the recent past, maybe they're in the distant past, but you look back and you're like, that was sweet. How does the fact that God is the main character in your life story inform the way you interpret that? Because now you look back and you say, "That, that was sweet. And oh my goodness, God was involved in that from start to finish. He arranged all those details. He calls things to come to pass. The sweet times that we had together, the sweet, the prosperity that I experienced, the success that I experienced, the favor that I experienced at work, whatever, God was in that. But knowing the fact that God is the main character in your life, just like he's the main character in the book of Jonah, how does that impact your understanding of the most difficult events in your life? when you've been the victim of someone else's sin in some way, shape, or form that you didn't see coming. Uh, When you, in some way, shape, or form, buried someone that you thought would bury you. When God calls you to take a step in a direction that you never thought he'd call you to take because it just doesn't make sense. Maybe you look back on it, and hindsight is kind of 2020. Because you know some things you look back on, they still don't always make sense. But you remember, God is the main character of my story. He is working. Even when I don't see him working, he is working. Finally, one of the greatest reasons we understand Jonah to be historical narrative, quite frankly, is because Jesus referred to it as such. Uh, Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke, chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. Luke 11, verse 29 says this. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, he, Jesus speaking, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of who? Of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so that's Jesus talking about himself saying, I'm the ultimate Jonah. I'm the ultimate Solomon. I'm the ultimate. I am. They were but a shadow of the thing to come. I am that guy. I am the great, the one that is greater than Jonah. Jonah eventually reluctantly preached repentance to the Ninevites, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. And they were saved, and they repented. But in the fullness of time, Jesus willingly left the glories of heaven. Not reluctantly, willingly. He's the better Jonah. Went to a place that wouldn't welcome him, called earth. Came through the womb of a virgin and preached repentance. And just like the Ninevites who repented were spared the judgment of God, we today who have repented and believed Jesus at his word 
will be spared the wrath of God and receive mercy and grace instead. And today we get to celebrate and reflect on that as we celebrate communion together. Looking not to Jonah, looking not in the mirror, but looking to Jesus, the ultimate Jonah, the founder and perfecter of our faith, right? Hebrews 12 and verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jonah 2 and verse 9 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that salvation is of you from start to finish. Thank you for granting us saving faith. Thank you for opening our eyes. Lord, would you do that even now for your glory? Would you cause those of us who know you to rejoice and be glad? But, oh God in heaven, would you draw men, women, boys, and girls unto yourself even now through the preaching of your gospel as we celebrate communion together. Save, save souls, we pray. Take out stone hearts, replace them with hearts of flesh that are sensitive to the things of God. We pray that you would add people to your kingdom today that they might say along with Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.